Welcome to a place where we combine equal parts science, technology, design, and entrepreneurship. Then we gradually stir in magic to the mixture, and you have the Perception Podcast. Join us in conversations with design heroes, inspirational thinkers, business leaders, and trailblazers across the globe. This week on the Perception Podcast is legendary car designer Chris Bangle. One only needs to look down the street for evidence of Chris Bangle's ingenuity and far-reaching influence. A daring designer whose work has provoked endless discussion, Bangle is best known for his tenure as Chief of Design for the BMW Group, where he was responsible for bringing the designs of BMW, Mini, and Rolls-Royce into the 21st century. The New York Times has said Bangle is arguably the most influential auto designer of his generation. The experiences in design and innovation and the advice Bengal has to offer after over 25 years as a manager make him a speaker in demand. He travels frequently around the world to lecture, teach design, and consult with his client associates. Chris offered some incredible wisdom and deep insights into his design philosophy in this conversation. So here it is, Chris Bengal. Chris, welcome to the Perception Podcast. It's an honor to have you. Thank you very much. Thanks. I appreciate this very much. So just to get started, let's, uh, let's get into your formative years. Where did you grow up and what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, uh, I'm an American, even though you're recording this while I'm in Italy, where I live now. And I was born in Ohio, but my parents moved around the Midwest. So I actually grew up in Wausau, Wisconsin, and um, went, in fact, the first two years of college there before I went out to Art Center. Mm-hmm. And what did you want to be when you grew up? How did you know that was the path for you? And how did you discover design and car design specifically? My family is a, a, was a doing family in the sense that my parents were the ones who, who led it. They're, they're no longer with us. But they were very much uh, the kind of uh, adults who uh, led by the example of making, always taking adult uh, workshop classes, uh, Christmas was not about buying gifts. It was about making gifts for people. Uh, they, they were very active in many social groups in our town. And for those, they had to make tons of stuff for it. Everything from the chairs and tables to the props for skits and, and toys, of course, lots of things for the children of the family. So naturally, there was a, a workshop in the house. My father dealt in lumber. He was uh, an, an industrial sales rep for, for Weyerhaeuser, which, which meant he sold uh, wood to to people who build houses and things like that, mm-hmm. and uh, so there was a lots of stuff to, to do with when I was a kid. You know, making was a, was a big part. Later, I wound up at a high school in Wausau called Wausau West, which was very uh, progressive. It still is, as far as I can tell, uh, very progressive in that they promoted a kind of a German program of apprenticeship to learn real useful skills for jobs. I mean, by the time I was like 17, I, I got a chance to run myself a, a printing press the size to run a newspaper off of, you know, a big wow. Heidelberg press. Wow. So they had stuff like that to, to learn doing on, you know, a, a facility for learning hydraulics where you built hydraulic systems. Of course, repairing cars like everybody did in high school back in those days. And then later when I wound up at Art Center, uh, it was very easy for me to move into courses which had to do with photography or, or let's say print imaging because the courses I took at high school were about going into graphics, becoming a uh, printing is big in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And so they want to teach you to run printing presses and learn how to do that kind of stuff. And at that time, I didn't know what design was, but I liked drawing and my teachers pushed me towards doing technical drawings like a draftsman. I apprenticed as a draftsman for an electrical motor company for a while. 
And all that drawing eventually, I like drawing cars too, but I like drawing other things. But eventually it, it put the concept of an art school on my horizon. Mm-hmm. I initially thought I would go into the, the Methodist church. So mm-hmm. I was taking the kind of pre-seminary courses at the University of Wisconsin that you have to do. And while I was doing this, I, I got in touch with this art college in Pasadena, California. Sure. And they accepted my portfolio. And that's why I wound up there. Joined the dark side of the force. <laughs> so was there any kind of defining moment where you d- discovered or realized automotive design is where you want to be while you were in school? How did you make that decision? Well, I, you know, in those days, nobody even ever heard of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody knew what a designer was. Uh, in fact, I found out about the school by building a model car. And on the side of the kit of the, the plastic mm-hmm. model car said, Tom Daniels did this. He was a graduate of Art Center. And, you know, I took that and showed it to my, my high school, uh, what they're called, the kind of people that help you find a, the right career path. Uh, uh, senior advisor or uh, Yeah, 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 yeah something advisor. like that, right? And, and of course, the, the arts and I don't even think was in their catalogs. They never even heard of this kind of stuff. And so there was, it wasn't really an obvious way of going. I wound up at, I, I visited Art Center. I was super impressed by what I saw there, which blew me away to see little models of sewing machines and model cars and all kinds of stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I was thrilled to be accepted. Uh, and while I was at the school, I thought, okay, I'll go into the car side of it. I like the cars. I think they're cool. And uh, while I was there, uh, I was heavily influenced by the, the graduates before me, the, the teachers that they had there, etc. And still, none of this really told me I knew what a car designer was. Right. I really didn't know that. And in fact, uh, towards the end of my time at Art Center, I thought, you know, there's no jobs in this business. Hmm. So I, I turned my portfolio much more towards uh, like the movie industry, doing things like science fiction models. Star Wars was still popular then as a new thing, and it was a brand new concept back then in the 70s. So um, the idea of working for a place like uh, WED, W-E-D, which is Disney's um, development center, mm-hmm. or for the movie industry in general, that really was appealing to me as well. I figured no chance I'll have in the, in the car business. Mm-hmm. And uh, oddly enough, General Motors hired me. And while I was at Opel in Germany, this is where I got in touch with the automotive industry. You don't really know the industry when you're a student. But there at Opel, for the first time, I saw what career engineers were about, what, what career designers were about. I, I was, they were teachers. They were careerists. And you saw how their lives worked and what was important to them and the value systems. And it became more and more interesting to me. And, and I, I worked my way up in small scaling management. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was always in interiors. And it was very, very appealing to me. But still, at any point in time, at then I probably could have gone and done, I don't know, pens and pencils or spaceships or anything. It would have been still okay to me. It wasn't until I was at Fiat, uh, where I went from Opel, and where they put me in charge of an exterior studio, that I began to get in touch with the people who, who understand the depth of car design. Not as a student who sees it as a kind of a, a flat thing. You see what is around you now, and you and you vaguely understand it from a historical perspective. Mm-hmm. But now, there, I was in touch with people who understood it from the detailed depth. What it really takes as a profession. You know, this isn't a dilettante. Now you're a professional, and you better know these things. And the amount of stuff that they had to teach me at Fiat was huge. Was just immense, and I really began to soak that up and enjoy it. And I think at that point is when I realized that car design was a culture. Car design was not just a, a, a job. It was a, it was a very, very deep culture um, that required dedication. And that's when I think the first time I really understood car design as something different than everything else. 
Did you have any early mentors at Fiat or Opel or GM that really had a, a profound effect during these years? Oh, many. Kurt Ludwig, who was my first boss at, at Opel, uh, in the interior chief, he was wonderful because he was uh, the kind of person who would tell an engineer, if you can't do this, I can do it, and then you owe me a steak dinner. <laughs> now, uh, he never took uh, no for an answer from the engineers and uh, you know, would really berate me if I was so stupid as to come back and say, uh, they say you can't do this. You know, mm-hmm. This is when you begin to learn that uh, engineering is an opinion and uh, what you really need is to try and know their job better than they do. Uh, in fact, not so long ago, I was at a, uh, a meeting where Jujaro said pretty much the same thing. He said, if you want to be a good designer in the car business, you have to be first and foremost able to think like the engineers think and know what they know. For sure. So it, that was a very important thing. And Kurt was really important to me. He was also a great enthusiast. Um, Gordy Brown was my first boss there. He was just a hyper enthusiast. You know, he, he was bouncing off the walls. He was so full of energy. And, and I think I modeled a lot of my chaotic management style from him. Uh, when I was at at, at Fiat, I had um, architect Armando Cressoni was my boss at a certain point, not at the beginning, but later on he came in and was my boss. And this guy was philosophical to, to a T. He was a, a person who car design entered into a philosophy on how you see life. And I think his perspective, which was very positive to begin with, but also one that emphasized the quality skills of his team. He was always as good as his team was. Uh, if you look at the cars that came out under his regime in Alfa Romeo, you might put some real question marks behind some of them. But the cars that he did at Fiat, that you know, that we did for him, basically, made other huge jumps. And he himself, who I think he did the interior of the Alfa 33, he, he himself, the competition version, mm-hmm. he himself, you know, was a very good designer. But he he relied entirely on his team. And that was very important to me to understand that someone could have a career, could be a designer who let go, who let go of actually doing it and put himself in the role of um, uh, guiding and uh, you know helping and protecting the team. That was very important to me. So next was, was BMW? Was that your next stop after Fiat? Yeah, after Fiat was, uh, was BMW, in fact. Um, I didn't think I would leave Fiat. It seemed like a nice, happy home. I was there for seven years. It, mm-hmm. it was really cool. We liked Italy. There was no reason to leave. But they came and uh, they had lost their design director, as you know. Mm-hmm. And they had spent about two years almost kind of in the wilderness until they um, finally settled on me. Mm-hmm. And that, that whole um, you know courtship was an interesting period in and of itself. But then I went to BMW and, and I was there for 17 years. And uh, you know all my bosses were mentors. My team mentored me. They took me in, um, realized that um, I was working in their best interest, so it was it was up to them to bring me up to speed on what is a BMW and mm-hmm. things like this. What were some of the and, biggest lessons that you learned from your time there? Well, uh, and specifically the Gina experience. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, to begin with, there's a, a great difference between an approach to a car like Fiat had where uh, basically the difference between a good Fiat and a bad Fiat was good Fiats made money and bad Fiats didn't make money. And in BMW, there's such a thing as it is a BMW and it is not a BMW, even though the products came out with their badge on it. At least this is how I perceived the philosophy at the time. Mm-hmm. So you could see that the the criteria that they had for what is a BMW, sometimes even they themselves had difficulty living up to. 
uh, if you go back to look at like the old 850, you know, the original one, sure, which was a very beautiful car, uh, Klaus Kapitza design, a really wonderful car uh, from an aesthetic point of view. But, you know, uh, the, the whoever was responsible for actually conceiving of it, the, the many people, they turned it into what the Germans call an eierlegative old sow. You know, it's like a, a wool, fur-bearing, milk-giving, egg-laying pig, <laughs> meaning it has to do everything for everybody. And at that point, you know, the car didn't perform really like it was supposed to. And in fact, the sales numbers reflected that. I think when I got there, they were selling like three a month. So when you would talk to people about the car, it was very difficult to separate that car, which as an aesthetic statement, I still think is fantastic, from the fact that, well, that's not really a BMW. You know, a real BMW wouldn't have let itself get into that position. And that took on the idea that, you know what, BMWs are kind of something beyond the people who do it. They are... How can I say? They cause the people to create them. And this is, uh, now I come to Gina. Gina, I believe, was such a wonderful latent idea with so many natural roots and so many relationships to historical examples. It was an egg that is so cool, it was just waiting for the chicken to lay it. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that sense, like many other great BMWs, they're there. They just have to cause the team to bring them into fruition. And Gina was exactly that. It was a I'm not really sure how much your readers know about or your listeners know about that project. Maybe give a, a brief overview of it. I'm very familiar, but it would be good for the listeners. Um, okay. In the late 90s, uh, I went to DesignWorks, which was the or is the daughter company of BMW Design, who is responsible for third-party design. So if somebody goes to them and says, do a tennis shoe, it's done with those guys. They are a profit center, meaning they have to actually make money on those people. So it's not... Uh, BMW uh, throwing money in, in public relation projects. These are actual working designers who actually prove their mettle by going head-to-head -head against all the other design groups in the world and showing they can do it better. And they do a very good job of it. And at that time, there were some uh, distinct groups of designers who had been at DesignWorks for a long time who worked on everything but cars. They worked on tractors and trailers and boats and airplanes right. and stuff like that. But, you know, they wanted to work on cars too. So I went to them and said, uh, I would like you guys specifically to tell me what you'd like to do as a car and come come back to me in a month or so. And a month later, I went back and, and uh, looked at their work. And one of the projects uh, done by Fernando Pardo, who's a fantastic product designer and uh, re really creates wonderful things, was this idea of what happens if we kind of take the clothes from a girl and try to make them seem as sexy and exciting as they are but not really worry about the girl underneath them. So we're actually looking at literally just just the, the clothes themselves. And what, why is it that you know the movement of a human body under under beautiful clothing is attractive to us and, and is exciting and and shows off the energy that's underneath? You know, you can see the the rippling of muscles underneath a t-shirt, or you can see a, a heaving chest, or you can see a, a, a you know lots of different types of, of contortions or gestures or anything you want to put it. Mm -hmm. You don't actually have to see the skin and bones doing it. You can just see the clothes moving, and you know exactly what's happening. And in fact, it can be really really uh, wonderful. So he said, "What happens if we just make car out of, out of some clothes. And so he had made a car out of a, I mean, literally the model car, I think the first one he did was out of a lady's stocking. Hmm. And it was just that. It was like you were seeing uh, this living animated being that glowed from within because the cloth is semi-transparent. 
and it could move. And so, you know, he imagined you could drive the car into your, your car into your, your garage and it would just pant and move and come on, let's go, let's do that again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right away, it was really sexy. And it, I said, that's very nice. I appreciate that. But actually, the idea of a cloth car is like super old. Uh, there were cloth cars in the 20s. Uh, the first airplanes were made out of cloth. Around here, every other truck on the road, uh, mm-hmm. the whole back end of it is, uh, is actually tarps, cloth that hold it together. So I didn't get what the big deal was about this. In fact, when I was at Art Center, one of the projects there was a uh, car that would go into an urban environment by becoming smaller using cloth to collapse itself. Okay. So I didn't think Fernando's idea was all that unique until I thought about it some more about why he was doing it. And he was doing it not because there's a functional reason, like it comes bigger, smaller, or something like that. He was doing it from an emotional point of view. You know, it's downright sexy. And on the, uh, after that visit, I happened to fly home. Uh, by, this is a story I've told many times, so please forgive me if you've heard it somewhere else. But, I love this story. <laughs> okay. So I was flying home, and I stopped in New York where I had to uh, check some uh, real estate out for a design studio we were going to put in New York. And there I visited a place called... Uh, materials connections run by George Valerian, which is a fantastic library of materials. I mean, it's just bins and bins of stuff that's all tagged and, and marked, you know, chemically what it does and functionally, et cetera, et cetera. For designers, it's heaven. You just go through there and paw through all this stuff. But they also had in the waiting room a kind of a permanent display, or I don't know, every month they change it, of something interesting about materials. And that month's display was about uh, fabric architecture. Okay, once again, the, this, the concept of cloth. But this time it was through the history of architecture. And quite honestly, I, I really hadn't been up to speed on all this stuff. What architects had been managing to do over the last number of years with cloth in architecture, and it was fabulous. I mean, they were doing stuff. They were making stadiums out of this stuff. They were making buildings. We're not talking tents here. We're talking massive structures that are mm-hmm. using fabric hooks and this, that, and the other. Really cool. I thought, oh, that's really cool. All right, fine. Um, then I got on the airplane, went home, and uh, my homework on the way home is I had to do uh, the reading book for my job in BMW as a design director on the long-term investment policy of the tools of BMW. And tooling for a car exterior is the stamps that actually make the body panels. And probably your listeners don't know this, but the reality is a single piece of sheet metal might have to go through four, five, six, seven different stamps before it achieves all the curves that you want it to have and also is trimmed correctly and has the tabs and little holes and everything. Mm -hmm. And every one of those stamps is out of a gigantic colossal machine and the whole setup is billions. And so in this briefing book, they wanted me from design to say that in the future, we would never need seven stamps. We could do with five, something like that. Okay, which would save the company downstream tons and tons of money. And as I'm reading this book and being confronted by the sheer amount of money that goes into this tooling, just unbelievable. And then every time we get done with a car, they just basically check out the tools. Right. I thought, wait a minute. I just saw a car that was really sexy without any tools. And I just saw a bunch of buildings that didn't take any tools to do this. And the reason it was so cool is it was sexy. And isn't that why people pay us money? They want sexy cars. So I went back to BMW, totally charged up with the idea that we didn't need all these tools. We could make sexy cars without it. Anyway, the rest of this became this cloth car Gina that we finished in 2001. And uh, we did not present it to the world. 
Instead, uh, it stayed as an internal inspiration and a vision model within the company until 2008 when uh, we actually showed it in a, uh, a YouTube broadcast. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what you what you just described there is a, is a lot about imbuing uh, soul into into your car design and the role of character and identity. Can you talk a little bit about that, about personality and the car and the soul of the automobile in your designs? Um, this is the idea of personality and soul is a relatively new one. If you were to actually look at the history of cars, I'm not so sure that personality would have been the hot discussion topic in 1930 about one of those cars. I'm not so sure it would have been the hot discussion topic in 1950. Um, don't recall it popping up in anything I read in the 70s. You know, it's just the idea, a car is a car, right? Mm-hmm. And what you made out of it, you made out of it. The most you would get is a sculpture. So for the longest time, you probably saw a debate between the, the designy people who expect everything to have some kind of rational functional basis and the car guys who think everything has to be somehow an emotional charge and therefore it's all okay as long as somebody gets off on it. And that dichotomy of, of reasoning is what kept also, that split in the reasoning rather, is what kept car design a bit marginalized for years. And even today, you know, car design is not considered mainstream design. So uh, in the 80s and 90s, as brands came onto the scene, they began to issue their own edicts on what it takes to become one of us. And it wasn't enough to just give it aesthetic characteristics. They suddenly had to start describing these things as, you know, what real people would be like. If if Minnie was a person, what would right. he be like? You know, that kind of thing. Right. And so the whole idea of identity in that sense and personality in that sense, although it was always there in the cars, you can always find it, almost any product. Mm-hmm. It really didn't become a talking point until much, much later. And that's basically what car design today is about. It's about trying to create this identity, at least most car design today, is about trying to create some type of personality and identity that you recognize uh, in this uh, mobility object, which also explains the rise of the face. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 80s, we didn't talk about faces of cars. It was just headlights and a grill. And uh, in the 90s, okay, you talked about the face of a car. By the end of the 90s, you were talking about the butt face of a car because mm-hmm. the back end had to have a face too. Yep. So this, right? Yeah, absolutely. So this whole facey business um, is a, also a relatively new phenomenon. And uh, I was talking to somebody the other day about how important the face of the cars. And I said, well, you know what? Probably 70% of the cars in the history of the, of the planet never had faces. So why is it so important now? You know, this is, you know, it's a question you should ask yourself. Yeah. And, you know, we, we work with a lot of car companies and so many of them talk to us about each of the cars in their lineup as a unique personality or even a character. And just like you had the Gina, they, they sometimes even name these, these models. You know, that's the Tony or that's the, the Johnny. So it's very interesting the way they all sort of fit together in this, uh, in this family tree within this one big lineup and, and this one big storyline. Yeah, yeah. Well, I won't tell you who Gina was in the real story, but I think you can find that in other sources. <laughs> um, cool. So what do you think the role of a design director should be at a car company? Well, a design director has many roles. Um, first and foremost, it's the, it's the last instance of uh, responsibility for the design. So it is, it's completely unfair to say 
the board of directors made me do it this way. That's completely unfair. Uh, the design director is the one where the buck stops. And I always told people when I was at BMW, I said, if you like what, what we do, give all the credit to the team. If you don't like it, it's my fault. And that, that to me is a, a really important one. The, the assignment of, of responsibilities in that means that the number one responsibility outside of taking care of his people, we'll leave that for aside just for a second because all managers are responsible for their people. But outside of taking care of the people, the number one role of a design director is to fight for design. And that means he is or she is the um, advocate, chief advocate for design within the company. And sometimes design directors, they don't like to play that role and they farm that out to other people to do. Uh, and they like to go down and fiddle on the models or something like that and send somebody else into the tough meetings. That's not really the way it should go. And at the second time, if that's all a design director wants to do, uh, they're losing touch with what they're fighting for. Uh, it's a very difficult, there's no one single job which is a good parallel to a design director of cars. It's not a priest, you're not a sports coach, you are not a general of an army on a field. You are pieces of all of that, but you are something else entirely. And what that something else is requires you to um, be one with the cars. Do you know the concept of the word grok, G-R-O-K? No, I'm not familiar. This is a word that came into uh, existence by uh, Robert Heinlein in the book uh, Stranger in a Strange Land mm -hmm. in the 50s. And it kind of took on a, a certain amount of importance in the college communities back then. It means to understand something so much, you are that thing. Hmm. Okay? So a car design director's job is to grok these cars to the point he is that. And in fact, when I realized that that is exactly what I have to do, and I realized that the price for paying that is you lose your own soul entirely, which can have some super dire consequences, that is when I began my exit plan from BMW. Hmm. You mentioned earlier the role of, uh, of engineering and, and design. How, how have you convinced engineers to try new things that might be outside their comfort zones over the course of your career? It's got that timeless tension between form and function. Yeah, it's not really a timeless tension between form and function. That's probably not the, the best way to say it, if you don't mind me saying so. Sure. Um, because uh, the relationship between form and function is, is a very supple and often ambiguous one. It's, it's hardly as direct as one would think. Um, it's mostly a, a question of priorities. And the, the trick is to not have people talk about... Um, uh, win or lose in the sense of making uh, decisions with a certain hierarchy of uh, this is right and this is wrong, it's much better to have people come together around a set of priorities and get them to first and foremost establish that. Why are we doing this? Okay, If you can get these guys to, to agree with why, then you can tell them that, well, downstream from this, what you're asking us to do is no longer coherent with this why. Suddenly you put price tag above emotion. Mm-hmm. When did that happen? When you listed all the whys, price tag wasn't there. That was like third place. And now you've jacked it up to first place. So it involves reminding people of the raison d'etre for their work. Uh, 
-hmm. why are we doing what we're doing, mm -hmm. and getting them to get excited about it so that they begin to see the, the, the possibilities themselves. Of course, sometimes you're dealing with competency questions where, as I told you in the case of my first boss, you actually have to go in and say, damn it, I'll do this myself. Mm -hmm. Get out of the way. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, every design director's got a pocket full of stories where he walked into the engineers and you know, told them to stuff it and, and blew them all away. But I think it's it's more important when you get the people all on your side and you get them thinking for you. You get them solving problems for you before you even get to them. And to do that, you have to come back again to the priorities of what you're doing and get people inspired by it. So inspiration, giving energy into the team is one of the key roles of, of the design director. Mm -hmm. And as I said, if you're grokking those cars out there, if those things are you, they're looking to you to represent them. They want to say something. This car is trying to tell you something. There's nobody there opening their mouth. What's the car want to say? Did anybody, did anybody ask it if it wanted to be dressed this way? Come on, let's just let's take this seriously. Mm -hmm. Why is this car looking stupid? <laughs> or why is this car looking wrong? Or what is it? It's not enough to say, well, proportionally, it's a problem. What the hell does that mean? You know, you have to get people really on the deck, get their minds onto this job, get their, their focus and their attention exactly to see what is exactly happening here. And you know, one of the tricks to, uh, to understanding the relationship between a tire and a wheel arch is you back away from the car and turn your back to it and then you bend over at the waist and look between your legs at it. Hmm. This is one of the one of the first tricks they tell you in, in doing car exteriors. So you begin to you shift your perspective and see things in a new way. And suddenly the outline of the tire into the wheel arch is completely unique to you. It's you haven't seen it upside down like that. And you really quickly pick out the defects in it. And that if you take that as a metaphor for what you want people to do, you want people to do that. You want them to be able to back off change their perspective entirely, and if it takes bending over at the waist to do it, then damn it, do it. What's the state of current car design? Is there a car in the market today that stands out from the crowd by virtue of its design? Well, my son Derek, who, who studies car design, um, he, he told me uh, one time, he said, uh, quite possibly you could say that we are living in the anodyne age of cars, you know? You know, that, that's a great word, uh, not very well, very much used, but I like it a lot. He also calls cars today anodinosaurs, which is a cute <laughs> word for that as well. Anodyne means it's kind of like boring, but doesn't realize it's boring. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is really the problem that we have here. The, the age of cars that we're in are subject to so many external uh, influences on their design not because they want to, or not because we have to, but because we think we need to. And these external influences uh, move things down a direction which narrow the possibilities for for the cars to do maybe what they want to do from the inside or what people inside them want to do. And at the end of the day, we wind up with uh, a lot of vehicles that have some splish and splash, but they don't really challenge us to look at them differently. Uh, I remember we, I, I was at Frankfurt just recently and uh, talking to these aerodynamics guys and someone came on up to us and said, well, you know, the minute cars became aerodynamic, they all looked the same. And I remember my boss back in the, in the 80s at, at uh, Opal saying the same thing. He says, when aerodynamics kick in, it's going to be like fish. All fish are the same. And I thought about that and I never really bought into that metaphor, but I thought about it in today's point of view. And the problem we have today is you know what? They are all fish, and they are all the same. Mm -hmm. But all fish are not the same to fish. 
Right. They're same to us. If you're right. not really into fish, they all look the same. But if you're really into fish, if you are a fish, damn, they're different. They're really cool. Look, they're really different. The problem is not so much how much these fish are the same. The problem is we're having less and less people who give a damn about fish. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't really care about the fish, then they look the same. Probably, if you, well, this isn't a probably, this is a for sure. If you go to an old time car meet, you know, I go to some of these as a judge or whatever, I really enjoy them. Mm-hmm. And you talk to these guys who are totally into cars from 1915 or 1917. Quite honestly, if I walk into a room full of those cars, they really look all the same to me. They're the kind of black boxes on wheels, you know, mm-hmm. model T type of looking things. To me, I have a great difficulty in telling one from another. To these guys, they are incredible differences, fantastic nuances, amazing things, these guys with small details that finally when you look at them and give them a chance, you go, yeah, yeah, okay, I get it. So that kind of fish, these guys are totally into. All right, now we come back to the present. If we say, or I say, that cars are in this anodyne phase where they're boring, they don't even know they're boring, uh, they're driven to become the same by fearful brands and terrified companies and whatever else are unimaginative designers. Part of the real problem, though, is we're losing our audience in terms of being interested in them as fish. And the less they care about it, the less they'll look for those differences and the more things will look the same. The two hottest topics right now, of course, are autonomous driving and electric. How do you think those shifts are going to impact automotive design? Well, it could impact them dramatically if we want them to do. Car design form follows meaning more than anything. Mm -hmm. So if the meaning of an electric car is exactly the same as the meaning of every other car, it's going to look the same. Uh, Case in point, Tesla. If you look at their their wonderful sedans, they look kind of just like other people's. Very difficult to tell apart. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at one, you look at an Aston Martin or something, pretty much the same kind of car. So if the meaning is the same, the car is going to look the same. If you want the meaning to be different, well, electric drivetrain can help you on that. Otherwise, it doesn't buy you a thing in terms of designer point of view. Uh, it's kind of like space frame cars. I remember people talked about them as being so fantastic. And they are until you try and package one and you suddenly realize that, you know what, these things take up a lot of space. That's why they call them space frames, I guess. Anyway, so electric drivetrains can be a help if, if we want them to be, um, but they don't necessarily uh, have to. On the other hand, autonomous driving vehicles are, are a completely different type of a, an animal and are less about um, how the car is built and much more about why it is being built. Mm-hmm. So there you have a real chance to introduce uh, a different concept in meaning because I don't own this thing, I use this thing, it's a people mover, I don't know what. Depending on how we decide to use these from a business model point of view and as, as, a, as a user point of view, they can go in different directions. This could be the greatest age of the unique uh, carrozzeria style one-offs because um, it's a piece of rolling sculpture that we invest in for God only knows what reason. Or we could be looking for the, the greatest age of people movers and they all look like they should be chained together on a track, on a monorail track above right. Disneyland. Right. Yeah, you know, one way or the other. Uh, what's a little bit problematic is people haven't asked other questions about cars other than just that. And uh, these are, you know, it's a little bit problematic that some of these other questions are not being challenged. What are some of your all-time favorite pieces of automotive design, excluding yours, of course? Oh, I mean, I like all cars. Um, I had uh, just uh, a recent um, discussion with a group who asked me to judge uh, beautiful cars. 
Now, these are not favorite cars, so I'm sorry if I'm digressing. No worries. Okay. Okay. Um, They asked me to judge beautiful cars, and they said, and also while you're at it, name the ugliest cars. (laughs) And I I told them, look, I I would have been in on this game if you hadn't said that last bit, but now I don't want to participate. (laughs) And the reason is this, whereas the concept of beauty is a wonderful one to split into fractions, digress upon, and any way you cut it, it's a wonderful uplifting experience to discuss about by calling certain cars ugly and putting them on the opposite end of the pole of beauty, what, what, what that would do is it would marginalize those into a zone of preconceived ideas about what is right and wrong. And that is like marginalizing anything different, anything unusual, anything that fails, anything that was a courageous attempt but you know just didn't take off. Mm-hmm. And that is horrible. If, if you want new ideas to grow, they have to grow out of a fertilized ground of imagination. And you know, that fertilizer doesn't come cheap. It, it, it's like compost. You, these failed ideas, these cars that somebody else may call ugly, they all belong to a huge pool of experiences that if car designers can't draw from that, they have no way to experiment for the future. Uh, it's, 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 it's a deadly condition of, once again, going back to the con- concept of anodyne, boring produces boring. And if you want to reduce beauty down to the banality of always do the same trope again and again and again because people seem to have liked it and never once challenge yourself, then you're going to wind up with really flat design. Uh, A great alternative to that is music. Think on how much music is progressive and challenging and how many times you yourself have heard a piece of music that you say, I hate this. And then 10 times later you go, I love it. It's my new favorite. And if that's missing... Um, that's also missing in car design for them to work from. So this idea, uh, as Derek says, of the compost uh, pile necessary for future car design is a really dramatic one. And so when you ask me about my favorite cars and things like this, my mind tends to gravitate towards my favorite sources of car design. Like where where am I inspired by? Mm -hmm. And uh, those inspiration pieces, sometimes the best car design inspiration pieces aren't cars at all. Sometimes they're architecture, sometimes they're sculpture. Um, P-51 Mustang is a wonderful airplane to inspire you from a car design point of view, just as Casa Girasole in Rome. If you look at that from a point of view of uh, avant-garde architecture, a building done in 1948 will basically blows away anything done for the next 35 years. And then when you think this was done four years after Italy was reduced to a rubble in World War II, how the hell did they do that? Mm-hmm. It becomes even more impressive. Um, if you look at some of the things that we've seen in theater and that tend to remain wonderful forever and ask yourself, what would be the car design a- analogy of that? Is that what an icon is? You know, which car is Hamlet? Those kind of things. Uh, when, you, when you are confronted with a profile in courage or, or even your own ideas of right and wrong are challenged as these days they're being done continuously as the concepts of the past are giving way to our new understanding of what our future should be. Then you ask yourself, what was the sim- similar effect in car design of that? Was there a time when we said, no, we never want to do this. And now we look at it again and we say, you know what? It was really right after all. Mm-hmm. Uh, Derek likes Derek likes to throw the original Ritmo at me as one of his examples of cars that you can really learn to love in that sense. And uh, what I like to do is is go through these with him, and and it challenges he, he challenges me, and I challenge him back on it on why this is or wasn't good because I was there when these cars came out. Of course, he wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you see that a car, even like the Ritmo. 
damn, that thing was avant-garde. Holy shit. You know, besides the fact that it was the first car with all plastic bumpers and nothing behind them, not just plastic per se covering up a metal bumper, but just a plastic bumper and nothing else. It was, from an aesthetic point of view, this was architecture pure. Probably very few chances that uh, a piece of rolling architecture that came that close to, to working in both worlds. And then you think, my God, you know, we kind of laughed about it back then. But you know what? The thing really works today. And that, of course, leads to your, to your mind, what is the idea of timeliness in car design? So out of all that, you got one car name. That probably works very good. <laughs> well, I love this idea of, of inspiration. That's really going to put, put me on the map, isn't it? Yeah. I love the idea of inspiration from, from unexpected sources. And, you know, that's a big theme with us as well. So architecture is a passion of mine. It's actually what I studied first before finding graphic design. But I always look back at architecture for, for inspiration. So uh, I can totally relate. My next question was, uh, what advice would you give to young designers just starting their careers? But hearing that your son, Derek, is a young designer, my question would be, what advice did you give him when he was starting this career? Uh, he actually just got his uh, master's in uh, critical writing about design. So he's okay. actually becoming a design critic on this. And that's, that's also the job he does for me here for, in the meantime. Um, but basically, the, the advice is the same anywhere you go. Uh, first and foremost, don't forget that you're entering into something that requires the famous 10,000 hours. Mm -hmm. So, you know, begin to think about how you're putting those 10,000 hours in. Uh, because the earlier you start, the better you're going to come out on the other end. And uh, I often think, gee whiz, you know, if I drew pictures of people as many times as I drew wheels, I'd be a hell of a lot happier with how I do portraits these days. <laughs> but the 10,000 hours went into making circles. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's one thing. But the, I think the a more important thing is, it just came up recently also in a discussion with Derek, was this idea of what is our reason for doing this? There's so many people doing design, so much stuff being made, and the consequences on our planet are so dramatic that just to do something nice is no longer a good excuse. That's not enough. There has to, we have to begin looking at the meta reasoning behind these things. What, what other level does it work at? So that what we're doing is justifying an advancement in our culture, not just, just justifying consumerism. And I think that's a very good approach. Uh, that's something I would advise young designers to begin to become aware of. And while they're at it, I'd like them to become aware of their value systems. And this is probably the most disturbing thing that's come out in the last couple of years is the fact that we are, as designers, are on the front line of devaluing humanity at the price of valuing non-human. Non-human being a pretty machine, um, uh, a nice technical piece, uh, something synthetic over something organic, the perfect over the, over the characterful. And th this is leading to some super, super scary, horrific consequences. And by this, I don't mean that, okay, AI is going to take over your job tomorrow. Mm -hmm. that, that's a part of it. Even worse, we ourselves are, are devaluing the human contribution to the point where we just disenfranchise enormous parts of humanity. We just don't care what they think because they have nothing to offer to us. And that, I think, is one of the worst things possible because disenfranchising people means they turn to other um, sources for for their own reason for existing and a lot of those things are are destructive and scary and I think this is where designers have a responsibility um, if you look at your own world of graphics 
okay? Mm -hmm. uh, you probably came through a Western system of calligraphy, but with a huge appreciation of Eastern calligraphy as well, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. Okay. But the two could never be further apart in terms of perfection. Uh, we used to say, uh, if you give uh, uh, 100 hours to uh, a, a calligrapher in the West, they would spend 100 hours drawing the perfect letter M, correcting the edges, making the proportions correct, making another overlay, getting back, looking at it again, correcting the little feet, you know, on the serifs, getting back, looking at it again, making sure the X had enough, fattening it up here, loosening it up there. You know what it takes to make a correct letter. Mm -hmm. Right. It takes it takes the hundred hours. If you gave a hundred hours to perhaps an Eastern calligrapher, they'd spend ninety nine hours and fifty minutes sitting there thinking about it, and then in the last minute, grab that brush and go, Whoa! and there would be perfect. Right. Yeah. That expression of spontaneity would be good. Right. You know exactly what I mean. I right? totally do. Okay. So, as much as we appreciate that in that particular format. Imagine if I asked you to apply that to the uh, to your cell phone or your laptop sitting in front of you. You can't possibly imagine one cell phone coming off the line looking anything other than perfectly, 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 perfectly identical to the one next to it. Otherwise, spontaneity? No, 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 no. That I saved that for the cell phone cover. Okay, the the object itself? No. And by proliferating this mentality of true perfection, uh, we are in fact turning ourselves into a machine culture that, you know, funny enough, machines do us better than we do. And at the end of the day, who's going to lose? Not the machines. Yep. Last question, because I know we're getting short on time. Tell me all about CBA and what led you to founding it. Uh, well, as I told you, I, I, at a certain point when I was about 45, I started a, an exit plan from BMW thinking, ah, I can probably last until I'm 50. And then... Uh, I'll have been 15 years in the company, and that's correct to have done what I need to do and helped my team to the point where they can go on without me. And they, they went on without me wonderfully. Uh, it took me two extra years, so I actually spent 17 years there. Mm -hmm. But at that time, I began looking for a place which would be the next phase of uh, our life. My wife is Swiss. Neither of us uh, were born or in Germany, I didn't live in Switzerland. She never lived in America. However, the first seven years of our marriage were in Italy, so it seemed appropriate to come back to Italy, where we as a couple were formed. So we began looking for a place here. We found one in the, in the wine country of the Langa, a very beautiful area. And uh, we made our own company, and we called it Chris Bangle Associates, not Chris Bangle Design, mm -hmm. because Chris Bangle Design would imply that everybody here is just my wrist an extension of what I want to do. And instead, I want to make sure that everyone understands they are they are participants in this. They have a stake in it. The client does. The engineers do. The marketing people. Whoever is somehow has an interest in what whatever we're doing is an associate. And you know where this really came home? It was kind of an almost an emotional moment. Um, some guys in one of the car companies called me up the other day and said they were pretty pissed off because... Uh, their bosses were refusing to let them sign their sketches. Hmm. And uh, they thought this was another way to dehumanize their work and uh, alienate them from it and blah, blah, blah. Okay, it was something that I never believed in, so I always said, sign your sketches, and I, I was quite upset by it as well. But I went up and I asked my own team, you know, you guys don't sign your sketches. You know, how come? I never told you not to. And they said, well, we don't have to because we're CBA. And I thought that was a really wonderful moment of identity with, with the place. That it, it goes beyond saying, 
you know, this is the official company, so everything we do is company property. It goes by saying I identify with enough that, that I am this. Kind of, they grok this company, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, so much they, they, they identify with just putting those three letters on it. And that was really nice. That was a very, very um, nice return on, on their investment into this. I appreciated it very much. Anyway, so we do design for and design consultancy for, for everybody who's interested in, in a different approach, um, thinking a bit radically, but also coming from the experiences I have both in the industry and also in management. And we also do things for the community. We do uh, nonprofit work around these gigantic benches that you might know about. And in fact, this morning I was out uh, measuring a, a piece of property to take a bench for um, people with handicaps. They can put a, a wheelchair on it. But we also do things for kids. We do cartoons. We do these Archie Arch cartoons. Mm-hmm. And that is taking up more and more of our time as we discover it is car design in another format. And uh, it's quite fun. We just finished uh, doing a whole set uh, with a group of um, children who were born blind. Hmm. And imagine, we're talking about cartoons for them. What we did was we, they, their, their um, how do you say, uh, the, the, the teachers, the people who are with them, were taking these kids on a hiking trip in the mountains. I mean, real mountain stuff. We're talking ropes and, and climbing and helmets and everything. And we made the Archiarch characters out of foam for them, and we gave all the elements of their hiking trip, you know, the carabiners and the ropes and the helmets, names, and made them participants in a story. And we gave them half a story to talk about, and they took these models that they could feel, they were made out of foam, and they finished the story among themselves on their hikes. And their their teachers wrote it down for us and, and sent it to us along with the photographs of the kids. And we turned this into a series of color drawings that you know that you could color in black and white images mm-hmm. of the characters of Archie and his friends on this hike and then they took that to a school of children who who had normal sight and together they colored it in and by together i mean the kids who could see used their fingers kind of like uh, templates and masks for the kids who couldn't see to color in it was super emotional very beautiful wow well, Chris, thank you so much. This was a, a true honor and a pleasure to speak with you. I really appreciate your time. And where, where can people find you online? How can they get in touch? Uh, if they write to me uh, at our website, uh, Chris Bangle Associates, write to contact. It all goes to me. Um, I tell young people, if you want me to look at your portfolios or something, I try to answer everybody, all the students. Um, so if, you, if you've got a, a PDF or something you want to send me, that's, it's okay. Uh, you know, I'll tell you what I think anyway. Cool. But, uh, that's very generous. If you, go on to, if you go on to the site, there's also some tips for students on, on school, on how to get through school and stuff. Fabulous. Thanks again, Chris. I really appreciate it. Jeremy, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that wraps up another episode of the Perception Podcast. As always, send any questions and comments to ask at experienceperception.com. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. Sign up for our weekly newsletter on our site, experienceperception.com slash contact. Lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes and write a nice review. See you on the next episode.